Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we're going to be talking about Ukraine. It's the biggest country in Europe, I think, geographically, and on the 24th of August, it celebrated its 25th anniversary. But at the same time, as we heard from President François Hollande this week, things are hotting up in eastern Ukraine, and many people are going to be talking about the implementation of the Minsk Agreement and the question of whether European sanctions should be renewed towards Russia over the next few months. To help us make sense of this, we have a crack team of Ukraine observers. First up is Andy Wilson, um, who is a senior policy fellow on ECFR's Wider Europe programme, and I think one of the biggest experts on Ukraine that lives outside of the Ukraine in the, in the whole world. And also joining me uh, hot off a plane from, uh, from Ukraine are... Uh, Frederick Reslau, who is the head of ECFR's Wider Europe programme, and Gustav Gressel, another senior policy fellow on, on our Wider Europe programme. The two of them have just returned from a trip to the Donbass region um, in eastern Ukraine, where violence seems to be escalating and which is at the heart of these discussions about the implementation of Minsk. So why don't we turn to you first, Andy? Um, how does Ukraine look on its 25th birthday? Well, 25 sounds like a big number. Ukraine's reached maturity. It's past 18, it's past 21. I think 25 is the official age when people um, stop looking forward to being older and start wishing they were younger. So, in theory, Ukraine is mature, but um, I was looking at the kind of history of political slogans in Ukraine the other day. The first president, Leonid Kravchuk, had a slogan, we have what we have. <laughs> Basically, we can't really change the system, the kind of Soviet system we've inherited. Too much like hard work. Then two of his predecessors had a very similar slogan, which was, we have survived. Um, we've lived through Russian pressure upon us, etc. So both of those are setting the bar pretty low. If all you've done in 25 years is survived and kept the system that you were uh, that you inherited at the beginning, and so you mean collapsed. I mean, you could you could alternatively look at Ukraine as being two years old, but its real history started two years ago with the um, annexation of Crimea, the war in the east, the uh, Euromaidan and everything that came before. So many things that have been left undone for all that time. Yet Ukraine has been trying to push forward for these last two years. So in some ways, uh, that would be a, a fairer assessment of Ukraine's t true age, because obviously it hasn't done that much in two years. And so looking um, forwards, I mean, actually survival... Um uh, at the moment, if you look at it, the world isn't such a terrible thing to hope for. I think there are a lot of um, both sovereign countries and also political systems like the EU that would, would chalk that up as a success if, if they uh, survive another 25 years. Um, but what do you think the people are most worried about when you go to Ukraine at the moment? And how do they see the last 25 years uh, in terms of the, the kind of history of the, the country, the long durée? 
Well, if you did look at the last two years, uh, some of the kind of uh, reform metrics aren't so bad. You know, the, the budget has been budget deficit has been reduced, current account deficit reduced. Um, uh, big savings have been made by um, equalising energy prices. Blah 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 blah. Um, but it's the kind of prosaic stuff that um, ordinary people, as usual, um, in any part of the world, are most interested in: living standards, prices, and the war in the East. Insofar as it affects daily life, Ukraine had to bring back conscription uh, back in 2014. It had to um, uh, deal with uh, 1.2 million internally displaced people from the east, um, all of which has been a, a very tough um, order. Um, so all of that, I guess, is set against a certain amount of pride in having been attacked by Russia without good reason, and not exactly having won, but at least fought Russia to a draw on the ground. And given historical stereotypes about Russian superiority, etc., that is of considerable psychological sucker and is set against um, all the other stuff. Um, so people have a renewed pride in their country, but don't really see it as delivering uh, it on sort of pocketbook issues. And b- before I come to the other two, one last question for you, Andy, because you, you wrote one of the, I think, most read um, English language descriptions of Ukrainian history, where you talk about Ukraine, the unexpected, the Ukrainian, sorry, unexpected nation. What, in what sense um, did you mean that they were unexpected? Well, um, two things in two dimensions. Statehood was clearly um, came as a surprise to many, certainly its timing, which was all to do with the speed of Soviet collapse. There was a movement pushing for independent statehood within Ukraine, but at the time it didn't look likely to uh, achieve that on its own. But as well as statehood being a surprise, so was in some ways nationhood. But Ukraine was uh, blurry around the edges. I never argued that it was split down the middle, as many people uh, have argued, particularly in 2014. Uh, Ukraine's historical fortune in many ways that it has a variety of internal differences and they don't all coincide, superimpose if they did then Ukraine might well have been in serious trouble splitting down the middle Ukraine was always blurry around the edges and one thing that has changed since 2014 is that that is beginning to be a bit clearer and better defined particularly in some parts of East Ukraine outside the Donbass, outside Crimea um uh, plus, there's a dimensional aspect. Ukrainians themselves are slightly surprised, but clearly the rest of the world is super surprised by this unexpected event. We simply w- aren't, weren't used back then, 25 years ago, and even now, uh, even since 2014, there is a lot of ignorance about Ukraine and its history and its culture. So it was unexpected to the rest of the world. So you think in a strange way, Vladimir Putin has maybe got some sort of claim as the, the father of the Ukrainian nation, that the annexation of Crimea might have turned a kind of fuzzy nation building project into a real one. 
Yeah, yeah, and uh, a lot of Ukrainians love to point out that paradox. You know, Putin, the Volodymyr the Great, they like to call him, you know, which is the Ukrainian version of his name, Vladimir. Um, referring to Prince of Kiev back in a thousand years ago. Yes, but um, I wouldn't at all say that that's a completed process. You know, the, the war, the revolution, the annexation two years ago, everything, all of that is still fresh. So at the moment, it looks like what was fuzzy is becoming more clear. Ukrainians on the whole are more patriotic. Um, they are very clear and correct about who to blame. Uh, not the Russians as a people, not even the Russian state per se, but the particular people who lead the Russian state at the moment started the war. Um, so that has had a considerable effect on consolidating national identity, but Ukraine is not out of the woods yet. So, um, Frederick and, and Gustav, you were you were in Ukraine for the birthday celebrations by the sound of it, or did you just miss them? Uh, were lots of people out on the streets waving Ukrainian flags? Yes, they were actually. This was this was quite interesting, and I think it really confirms uh, Andy's point. We were in uh, the east. We were in in um, Severodonetsk uh, on the 24th. And um, in the center of town, uh, there were big celebrations, lots of Ukrainian flags, um, people dressed in, in the traditional um, Ukrainian clothes, um, you know, celebrating um, national, national Day. So I think, and also, you know, from people we spoke to, we, I think we also got the sense that there was real clarity about, you know, when it comes to the conflict, when it comes to the conflict in the Donbas, who was actually to blame, and that blame lay in in Moscow. So even um, you know Russian speakers um, there were very sort of clear-eyed about um, about the situation uh, on on the ground and who was actually responsible. So, um, what were some of the the memorable things that that went on? Because I mean, Donetsk is one of the bits of the the divided country. I mean, certainly when the uh, Orange Revolution happened, though the bits of eastern Ukraine like Donetsk were, were, were very much leaning more towards Russia than towards the EU. It was Yanukovych's um, uh, uh, base. Um, did you find that uh, public opinion there has shifted a lot? Yes, definitely. But I mean, to to sort of clarify that more, at the beginning of the war in the Donbass, and that is sort of the thing that people lined out very harshly, there were very few people who demonstrated for this sort of separatist protest, for the separatist project. There were very few Russian operative personnel on the ground, and, and the people said we could have spared this if sort of the reaction at the very beginning would have been more precise and harder and, and to the point and the Ukraine military wouldn't have been in such a rotten condition. Um, I mean, the thing that sort of people had a mixed feeling towards Kiev does not sort of conclude that they would nationally sort of mobilize for a different nation and then mobilize for war. I mean, in almost any country in Europe, you have a certain sort of periphery capital dislike uh, relationship. Look at the Bavarians; they don't like the Berliners. Or I just, I just come from Bavaria, actually. Yeah, I, I flew back from Munich yesterday. 
certainly different sensitivity there. But carry on. <laughs> um, and this was sort of one of the, the huge misjudgments the Kremlin did when they sort of hammered out the Novorossiya project. They, they, they sort of uh, bent over these, these domestic sort of cleavages and th bent it over their own image of what they would have liked to be the narrative in Ukraine. And that, that basically misfired. It was very interesting. We, we went to um, Slavyansk as well, which uh, in 2014 actually was taken by separatists and, and, and Russian forces. But the, the, it was only held for about three months because, um, you know, their regime just crumbled in a sense. There was very little um, popular support. So they were pushed out and pushed back to, to basically where um, the, the front line is is today more or less. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the Russians really did um, um, misunderstand a little bit the local situation and, and the support that they expected that um, this, this intervention would, would get. So, um, how much were the, 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 the kind of um, drums of war beating when you were around there. I mean, it's been a lot of speculation in the in the press about things heating up again, about um, the, the next few weeks and months being kind of um, critical. Uh, there've been military maneuvers. Russia has uh, been shifting anti-aircraft missiles, I think, into, into Ukraine. I mean, um, what did it feel like to you two when you were when you were there? Yeah, I think this, this is our, our, our big uh, takeaway in a sense that um, the security situation is really bad. I mean, every, every evening we basically heard um, shelling and um, the OSCE monitors who are on the ground, they, they report thousands of ceasefire violations um, every week. And in the past few weeks, there's been a, a real intensification. What, what counts as a ceasefire very, uh I mean, um, sorry, a ceasefire violation. Is it? Does it? Is it? Bat, is that just shooting a weapon, or is it? Do people actually have to die? Or I mean, what? What? What's the the OSC definition of a ceasefire violation? Well, I mean, the the, the sides have signed on to the the Minsk uh, agreements, which which basically required withdrawal of heavy weapons, no shelling, obviously, um, no exchange of fire, and eventual withdrawal of. Of, of troops, but I think as long as there is shooting, this is a this is a violation of of, of the ceasefire. Um, you know, so so every day there are um, hundreds of, of of these of these um, violations. Um, but it, but it's also quite interesting because uh, the the front line, the so-called contact line, um, hasn't really moved since February last year. So what we're also seeing is somehow that this front line is, is becoming solidified and becoming more permanent by, by the day. And neither side seems to be really intent. If you look at the situation on the ground, neither side seems to be really intent on taking more territory for, for, for the moment. I mean, this can obviously change, but for the moment, they seem to be in this sort of sitting war situation where they um, shell each other very much to make a point to show that, look, we're still here and don't even think about trying to um, take any, any more territory. I mean, my, my big takeaway is that the situation now reminds me um, very much of the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh, where you basically have this contact line, you have the two sides very, very close to each other, and basically exchanging fire nearly on a, on a daily basis. So it is a very sort of unstable 
um, and a violent standoff, but it's been like this for, for many, many years now. And, and my suspicion is that we'll see this dragging on like this for, for many years to, to come, actually. So, um, Andy, or in fact, any of you, I don't know who wants to come in, but w- one of the big questions now after the Brexit um, is whether the sanctions which the European Union has been holding up against Russia will, will, will survive. There are obviously a lot of member states uh, that have been talking about the need to get rid of the sanctions. Most of the, uh, prominent amongst them have been people like the, the Hungarian uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban, but various people in the uh, Social Democratic Party in Germany have been talking about um, particularly uh Sigmar Gabriel, but also uh, Steinmeier, the, the the foreign minister, have been talking about resetting the relations with, with Russia in in different ways. There are other uh, member states like Italy, which have kind of been asking questions about about them. Um, be interesting, maybe, to look at that in two ways. One element of the discussions will be about the situation on the ground in uh, in uh, in Ukraine, whether the Ukrainians and the Russians are. Uh, sticking to their uh, commitments, which they made as part of the Minsk process. And, and Angela Merkel, in fact, uh, this week gave an interview where she was asked about uh, about sanctions and she said she'd very much like to get rid of them uh, as soon as the Minsk um, obligations have been, um, have, been, uh, have been lived up to. Um, uh, but the other element is about the, the kind of new political geography of Europe post-Brexit. But maybe we'll start on the, on the Ukrainian process uh, side um I, I don't know who of you would like to talk about what's in this famous minsk agreement and what the two sides have have, have done so far and, and where the, the 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 possible violations on both sides are uh, I, I can start um well there are two key key dates in the calendar one is the sanctions decision on russia in december the other is the g20 meeting uh in september um, I, despite all the risks that uh, the other two were talking about in on a very, very hot contact line at the moment, I think the primary purpose of Russia's recent sort of um, pressure has been diplomatic to try and push its key interlocutors in the West, in the Minsk process, France and Germany, uh, into putting more pressure on Ukraine either to deliver the bad deal that was originally negotiated or to change it into something even worse. Uh, Putin hopes to meet Obama at the G20 and also uh, Merkel and Hollande separately. Um, But in terms of Brexit's influence on all this, I don't know even if in December it's soon or too soon to pick yet another round with the UK. You know, we'll still be an EU member then. We, we almost certainly won't have triggered Article 50. How much our uh, clout in sort of previous, which has been previously um, uh, shown quite effectively in maintaining the existing line on sanctions will have been eroded, I don't know. Longer term, clearly, Ukraine is extremely worried about a UK-less Europe in which the starting assumption is that Russia, Russian influence will be much, much greater. Uh, a recent uh, Valdai paper called on 
Germany to ignore the Poles and other advocates of a special relationship in the East. That's how ambitious Russia is. So Valdai is, is Vladimir Putin's uh, discussion f- format, uh, which uh, meets once a year, but there's now a kind of wider think tank associated with it that produces papers that, that nourishes these discussions. We'll go on to the, the, the kind of intra-EU politics afterwards, but but maybe uh, Frederick or, or Gustav, you could give us a bit more detail on what is in this famous Minsk agreement for people who, who are not following the discussions and the developments on the ground as closely as the three of you. Well, with pleasure. I mean, the Minsk agreement is sort of made up of 13 different points that range from ceasefire at the front then to a sort of initiation of a political reconciliation between Ukraine and, and the separatist held territories. Uh, there are many caveats with that. Uh, the first caveat is timing. So who's first? Uh, the Ukrainians want to sort of stress more the hard security points, ceasefire, weapons withdrawal, um, full access to the OSCE, uh, basically because they have fear that sort of the fighting can flare up, they are military, uh, militarily the, the inferior party, uh, Russia is shelling much more than the Ukrainians, um, uh, the, the Russian troops haven't withdrawn or have not withdrawn fully. Uh, when you say Russian troops, you mean Russian-backed troops? Uh, no, I mean sort of there are both Russian-trained, command-equipped and back troops where the foot soldier ranks are locals, which are the first line of, of sort of the DNR, LNR troops. And you have the second line, which are regularly sort of uh, regular Russian troops, uh, battalions taken out from brigades of, uh, in Russia, shifted to Donbas, and who are either some kilometers behind the border. Um, in, sort of in the south in Mariupol, you have just 30 kilometers to the front, and in the north, then border region where the OSCE has no full access, so nobody basically monitors these spaces where, where sort of these troops and a line reserve, if anything happens, they jump into and they, they do sort of the heavy duty stuff because the light sort of separatist, former separatist troops are, are not, not really militarily capable. Um, so that's sort of the, what the Ukrainians stress. The Russians, on the other hand, want to have the DNR and the LNR legalized as so quick as possible. Can you explain what the DNR and LNR are? Uh, the, the Donetsk People's Republic is the acronyms for the Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic. Those, these sort of entities um, created there on the ground. And Russia wants to have elections as quick as possible to have a, some kind of legitimacy for uh, these two entities. Uh, the problem there is sort of even uh, sort of according to the Minsk agreement, these um, uh, these elections should be held according to Ukrainian law and procedures, which which should see that sort of Ukrainian politicians would be able to join the competition. Now we have a de facto military dictatorship on the ground where you have only one opposition party uh, to the uh, to sort of the the official administration, which is the Communist Party, which is also a puppet party basically of the government that is sort of a fig leaf to show we have some kind of opposition. Uh, and the, the, the authorities in, in these People's Republic try to shield uh, their citizens from all sorts of external influence. So it's getting even difficult for humanitarian aid workers to access uh, these regions. Uh, Dr. Sans Frontiers have been thrown out uh, because the, the authorities suspect them of sort of subversive action. And, and in such a tense climate where you also have sort of foreign, sort of Russian normal troops and security services on the ground, um, 
the Ukrainians stressed the point that such elections would hardly be fair and free and competitive, and, and that's why they don't want to hold them. So what you're saying is that um, there will be a big argument over the next couple of months, both about whether Russia has fulfilled its side of the deal, and there are all sorts of different ways in which it hasn't, uh, from what you've just said, but also the Ukrainians are not going to to hold the elections that they promised to hold in in Donetsk and Lugansk for the for the reasons that you just described so um people will be able to 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 argue um uh that both sides are are, are failing to live up to their obligations yes this will be the line of argument also uh if you see sort of there was in the, in the in the original Minsk agreement there was some kind of consecutive order of all these points and and so if now, one and a half year after, uh, there are so many different interpretations of this treaty uh, out there that, that basically the, the, the Minsk agreement get, gets sort of bent over so much narrative that is sort of, again, blurred, blurred to, to the indistinguishable. But one has to stress the point that uh, the OSCE that should confirm at least the first points of this agreement has no full access to the areas and especially uh, has no access to really control the presence of Russian troops and, and installations there. And that is a huge problem and as, as long as this will continue, you will have uh, basically a very dodgy uh, process. So, Frederick, what do you think um, Angela Merkel, François Hollande, the custodians of the um, uh, of the Normandy process, which agreed the Minsk Agreement, are going to do over the, the next um, uh, few weeks and months uh, as, as this debate hots up? Well, uh, I think they're going to try to push for further implementation of the Minsk Agreement. I mean, it's clear that um, there is a stalemate, there is a deadlock, basically, um, the Russians say that, look, we want Kiev to make these political concessions, you know, revise the constitution to grant status to DNR, LNR. We want um, elections to be held in um, these, these territories as well. Um, while, while the Ukrainians say, no, look, you know, first we need to have a ceasefire and withdrawal of, of troops, Russian troops and, and, and heavy weapons and then we can then we can give make make these uh, sort of political concessions so this is a little bit the, the deadlock so what what's happening now is both in the minsk process and in the normandy format where you have france, germany france russia and ukraine where they're, they're trying to come up with ideas of, of how to sort of untie this this knot and and and, uh, and move forward but but it's an extremely uh, difficult uh, situation and the russians have been very clear in saying that Look, the security situation is not going to improve unless um, Kiev comes with uh, comes with some uh, concessions. But I think when it comes back to the sanctions, I mean, Merkel has also been extremely clear. Only uh, last week, she said that the sanctions um, will continue as long as, uh, as Russia doesn't live up to its obligations in in the Minsk agreement. And um, you know, again, a big takeaway from the trip is that the security situation is, is terrible in, in the Donbass. There is a, a war going on there, and it seems absolutely um, ludicrous to imagine that you can actually hold elections, you know, free and fair elections that live up to international standards that are monitored by international monitors, um, while the sides are shelling each other and while, you know, there are minefields um, everywhere and where not even OEC monitors 
now can, can go into every area. I mean, how can you have election observers move around if, if the monitors today aren't able to, to move around? So I think this is a little bit the situation we're looking at. Okay, well, we're running out of time. So I suggest we schedule a future podcast to talk about how the, the changing balance of power post-Brexit might affect whether the, the sanctions get renewed and what kind of policy European member states adopt towards Russia. And maybe we could get some representatives of, of some of the, the different perspectives within the EU on that. But maybe come back to you, Andy, for a, a last word on uh, on Ukraine at its, on its 25th birthday. If we take all of these things um, uh, together... Um, if we look back in 25 years from from now, what do you think people will kind of remember from 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 this period? Do you think Ukraine uh, will will still exist? What kind of borders do you think it will have? Do you think it will um, uh, still have a frozen conflict in its heart, or do you think that that um, there might be um, uh, a different kind of Ukraine that we're looking at? Well, in, if we look forward another 25 years, then I don't think at the end of that time, we'd be able to kind of repeat the same point that Ukraine has merely survived uh, an achievement in itself, but it hasn't been able to uh, change its society, its politics and its economics for the better. I think the next 25 years will be much, much tougher if it doesn't uh, improve its political system, um, the kind of pocketbook issues for ordinary citizens citizens then the pressure will really really be on which is russia's post novorossiya strategy i think um it failed to stimulate the uprising it wanted in one half of the country but it thinks that if ukraine continues to be a, a state that either fails or just muddles along then a public opinion will swing back in its direction okay well that's a it's a Big set of questions. So we'll have to start scheduling our podcast for um, for the 50th anniversary of Ukrainian independence now. Make sure that you're all um, around. Uh, but in the meantime, um, I think we're all just coming back from our from our summer holidays. So it's been a time when obviously we've been reading a lot. What uh, What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Andy? Um, I'd be lying if I said I was reading it right now. It's out tomorrow. But I'll be buying... Uh, a book by Mark Thompson. Uh, he used to be at the BBC and is now at the New York Times. Um, it's called Enough Said, What's Gone Wrong with the Language of Politics? And he sort of talks about what he calls rhetorical rationalism, i.e. the kind of normal discourse of what's <laughs> true and what isn't, uh, is under uh, so much um, threat uh, from social media, from the likes of Donald Trump, from post-factual politics or whatever uh, academics like to call it, um, uh, which will be very timely given Brexit that was probably written before the referendum campaign concluded and with Trump's campaign in the US. Great. What about you, Frederick? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I've been reading and actually editing a, a collection of uh, pieces for um, a new series coming out on, on the ECFR's website, uh, Russia's Role in the Grey Zones. Uh, and this is a follow-up to a, a collection we did earlier this year on life in the grey zones. And by grey zones, I mean these breakaway entities and republics, such as the Donbass, such as Crimea, but also Abkhazia, South Ossetia, Nagorno-Karabakh, and, and Transnistria. So we've commissioned pieces from um, experts and journalists who actually live in these places to talk about 
what Russia's role is in, 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 these, uh, in, these, uh, in these breakaway entities, both in terms of sort of military presence, but also the political, economic uh, role that, 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 and cultural role that Russia plays in these entities. So this will be uh, an extremely interesting collection that's hopefully coming out later this week. Fantastic. And what, what about you, Gustav? Um, I have a little son now, so usually when we when we go to bed, there is no time for reading. We we drop dead. Um, no, I I still try to a very strange book, um, but also very interesting. Uh, Oswald Spengler, The Downfall of the West, one of the old classics, but it's that sort of, <coughs> not 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 connected to wider Europe, but that sort of these these uh, FD discussions are flaring up. Um, I I try to warm up. Uh, sort of my feeling on what is sort of the mindset of, of sort of conservative Declanists and how how they make up the world and I th- still think Spengler's book also Pain in the Ass to Read is is probably the most worthy introduction into this kind of thought. Great. Well, I, I'm going to end with uh, a recommendation for two Andrew Wilson books on, on Ukraine. Um, First up is is the Ukrainians' uh, unexpected nation, which I think came out uh, in two thousand and nine, and then uh, more recently there is the Ukraine crisis: what it means for the West, which came out in twenty fourteen um, and uh, was written in the in the hot phase of the the Ukrainian crisis. Andy was happened to be there when uh, people started congregating in in the Maidan and um, uh, the the revolution. Uh, uh, really uh, started heating up, and, and Yanukovych was 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 driven from from office, and Crimea was annexed, and all the events that we've been talking about happened. Um, both uh, well worth reading, and will set the the anniversary of today in, in in a bigger context, both geopolitical and historical. So that brings this podcast to an end. If you've enjoyed it, please uh, do tell your friends about it. Post about it on Facebook, on Twitter, on ECFR's uh, Facebook page. Give us a ranking on iTunes or on SoundCloud. And uh, feel free to write to us to tell us what you think of our discussions, whether they're topics that we should be uh, delving into, whether there are other guests that we should have online. My email address is mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But we'll put links to all of the things that we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. And um, we look forward to, to coming back very soon with more topics. But in the meantime, from Andy Wilson, Frederick Westlau, Gustav Gressel and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrika Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. <laughs>